Let's open with a word of prayer. Our Father, we do thank you for this day and the blessings of it. We thank you for the great privilege we have to come together as the body of Christ. Thank you for fellow saints who strengthen and edify me. And Lord, thank you for your scriptures. Help us to understand them by your Holy Spirit this morning. We know that, Lord, we are desperately unable to comprehend all that Daniel wrote so long ago apart from your enabling spirit. So we ask that you would give us clarity, that you would help us to understand, and Lord, to understand it to a degree that it might influence the way that we live today, the way that we think, the way that we perceive the world, the way that we understand your sovereignty. And so Lord, we give you great praise this morning for you deserve it. You are worthy of all our worship, and so we desire this morning to worship you in spirit and truth. We desire that everything that is done in this place would be glorifying to the Lord Jesus Christ, for it's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, this is week number 22 in our study of the book of Daniel, and we're over in chapter 7. And while we're studying Daniel, last week we spent a, most of our time really over in the book of Revelation, uh, just beginning to make some um, matching of what Daniel wrote uh, really 600 years before John wrote in the book of Revelation and how similar some of the things that they wrote are. And last week we looked over um, in Revelation and saw the beast that comes up out of the sea um, with ten horns, the same beast that we see in Daniel that had ten horns. Or, yeah, And that these horns in Revelation, we get some understanding because it explicitly says they are ten kings who have nations that give their authority and um, the power of their nations to the Antichrist so that they might, that he might become even more powerful, being able to command um, these ten nations. And so uh, Daniel writing, not having the full understanding, John having more understanding. And so we compared those things. Uh, the most alarming thing that we've seen so far, both in Daniel and in Revelation, was that the horn, the 11th horn that comes up among the 10, overpowers the saints. And we saw that clearly um, in the book of Revelation last week where um, he makes war, he wages war against the saints. He does that by the empowering of Satan. So when he comes up out of the sea, Satan gives him, it says he gives him power and he gives him a kingdom. And so this is a satanic kingdom. It's uh, all driven by a satanic uh, force, but yet it's a human being leading human kingdoms. There's nothing supernatural about these kingdoms. And um, the leader of them, the horn that has eyes and mouth like a man, is a man. And so, uh, but he's empowered by Satan. And so we've seen the same thing in Revelation and in, um, in Daniel, and this overpowering the saints, you're able to see that more clearly in Revelation because um, there are scores of people 
during the tribulation times who place their faith in Jesus Christ. And we said, you know, what motivates them to do that? Well, you've got the influencing uh, voices of the two witnesses during the first three and a half years of tribulation. You've got angels in the midheavens who are calling people to God. And there are people who have heard the gospel when the tribulation times have uh, begin to happen, but have not placed their faith in Christ, who would be obvious to them that all of this was true. And so at that point, they'll place their faith in Christ. And the reason we know that there are a lot of saints during the tribulation times is because there's this picture in Revelation that shows this um, number of people standing before the throne of God wearing white robes, and it says you can't number them, there's so many of them, and they are those that came out of the, the tribulation, meaning they were killed during the tribulation, and now they're standing before the throne of God waiting for the culmination. And so there are scores of people, lots of people who trust Christ and are killed during the tribulation. And it's done by, you know, Satan um, goes after, uh, well, he, he has a war in heaven with the angels. Uh, Revelation 12 describes it. And during that war, um, he's thrown down to the earth, the scripture says, meaning, you know, <clears throat> Today, Satan has a broader realm that he can operate in. But during the tribulation time, he's thrown down to the earth so that his realm of influence is limited. And because of that, he's enraged. And so he goes after Israel to destroy Israel. And the scripture says that God, um, it says on the wings of an eagle, I think that's imagery, um, takes them to the, to the desert so that Satan cannot find them. So kind of interesting that Satan, with all his powers, can't find Israel during the tribulation time because God has hidden them and nourishes them. Um, and so and we'll see that again this morning. And that because of that, Satan then turns his attention because he can't get to Israel to go after all the others, the scripture says, who have a testimony of Jesus Christ, meaning they're true believers. And so in that going after them, he kills most of them. And those are the, the throng that is standing before the throne of God in heaven that's pictured there. We don't get all of that in Daniel. What we get in Daniel is that this horn, that is the 11th horn that comes up among the 10, is overpowering the saints. And that gave us a leap to go into Revelation. So that's where we've left off in Daniel, in verse 21, where in chapter 7, where the scripture says that this horn is overpowering them. But we kind of left it in mid-sentence when we went to Revelation, because if you read verse 21 of Daniel 7, it says, Thus he said, and the he here is the bystander, probably an angel that's in Daniel's vision, explaining to Daniel what he's been seeing. And he says, <clears throat> as he continues to talk to Daniel, um, actually, yeah, verse 21. Sorry, I'm lost. And I kept looking, and that horn was waging war with the saints and overpowering them. 
So that's where we went to Revelation to see that's exactly what John writes. And then, though, verse 22 relieves the tension that you have with that the saints being overpowered until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was passed in favor of the saints of the highest one. And the time arrived when the saints took possession of the kingdom. So even though the saints are being overpowered, even though many of them are killed, in the end here, the Ancient of Days comes and passes judgment and gives the kingdom to the saints who believe in him, who trust him, who love him. And we've seen this pictured. You remember back in, I think it's verses 17 and 18, when the bystander gave Daniel just a summary. Here's what happens. That it ended the same way. You've got four beasts that represent four kingdoms, and then the kingdom is given to the saints of God. And that's all he said. And Daniel says, no, I need more than that. So here he's giving Daniel more than that. But it ends the same way, of course. And this is the picture that we saw um, back beginning in verse 9, where the Ancient of Days comes, sits on the throne, opens the books, and begins to pass judgment. And before he does that, or as he does that, the Son of Man, the Lord Jesus Christ, comes up, and God gives him the kingdom, meaning that he's the king, he reigns for a thousand years, and all the saints serve him during that time. And it's a very different time on the planet Earth where there's a reign of righteousness and a reign of peace um, for a thousand years. And so all of that is pictured here in Daniel. And this horn, you remember back in verse 11, kind of previewed the judgment of this horn. The beast is slain, the horn is killed, and he's um, thrown into the river of fire that flows from the throne of God. And so clearly a picture of judgment, judgment of the Antichrist, the beast, um, him being thrown into the lake of fire. So all of that, that people usually go to Revelation today and talk about, is pictured here in Daniel. You know, some 600 years before Jesus Christ's ministry, Daniel writing what he saw. And, and Daniel tells us when he wrote this, um, he had this vision in the first year of Belshazzar's reign of Babylon, and then it says he wrote it down. So that's when he first wrote this. He may have just written some notes and then later wrote the whole book and put it into the book at that time, but he wrote it down immediately after having this vision. Yeah. Yeah. What you actually see, and it's really affirmed in Revelation 6, I'm sorry, Revelation 5, the object of the saints in heaven who have been slain is the earth. Right. I mean, they literally, you, you see it in Revelation 5 and 9, and they sang a new song. So this is this beautiful song and praise that's worthy of you to take the scroll. So this is the deed of the, the earth, right? Right. shall reign 
Yeah, and I mean, and, and Christ personally is in the land of Israel. Um, he's not where the temple is. He's a few miles away. We looked at that when we went through Ezekiel. Um, and so God is the one in the temple, God the Father. Jesus Christ is sitting on the throne, reigning the realm of the earth. Well, in order to do that with perfect righteousness, he needs people in other places. And those are the saints who came out of the tribulation and the saints before the tribulation. And the Old Testament believers are mainly in the land of Israel. And that, remember, that's how the cities are populated. All the desolate places are renewed. Uh, and the city is like it was during the festival times where it's packed with people. That's because all the Old Testament saints are there along with the people who live through the tribulation. Empty, but yeah. Back to earth, yeah, and well, the object of the rain is the earth, and even the new heaven. You know, when when heaven comes down, where your mansion is going to be, right, is on the earth, because the new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven. To the earth. Yeah, I mean, this planet wasn't created for a time. You know, um, there are different views of this. Uh, even in your elders and leaders, there are different views. Uh, some believe that the earth is renewed and made like new. Some believe it's destroyed and recreated. Um, and you can make arguments for both of those. I can make arguments for both of those, but I tend to hold to the one that the earth is destroyed. Yeah, yeah, and and you're a new creature, but you're still the same physical body, and so that's where they get the argument that the Earth is renewed, uh, one of the places. So, but there we'll get there, okay? Because those come up in Revelation chapter twenty, when you have to talk about that. Um, so we'll talk about those different views when we, one day, if the Lord wills, we get that far. But here in verse 22 of Daniel chapter 7, we see the end game and what we're talking about now, that God will reign on this earth. Um, there are many who believe that the thousand years is not a literal reign. We, of course, uh, take it differently and believe it is a, a literal reign of Jesus Christ that we saw detailed in the book of Ezekiel excruciating detail we saw given there of what that kingdom looks like. Um, so uh, we put those things together in that way. Now verse 23 um, and, and following after 23 is more explanation of what da Daniel has seen and it's given by this same bystander. The bystander, and Daniel has seen the beast overcoming the saints. You know, he said, I kept looking, meaning the vision restarted, and he saw this war and the, the beast overcoming the saints. And, but from here to the end of this chapter, it's just the bystander talking. It's not a vision that's out playing out. It's the bystander explaining to Daniel what he just saw. And so um, he tells him, and, and we've seen this before, 
But again, Daniel's the one who asked for more explanation. And so he's being given more explanation. And here in um, verse 23 and following, thus he said, the fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom on the earth, earth which will be different from all the other kingdoms and will devour the whole earth and tread it down and crush it. And we've seen this multiple times, that this fourth kingdom is different from the other three. And you'll remember, we've looked at this, the other three pictured as animals, as uh, a lion and then a bear and then a leopard. And we kind of related those to uh, kingdoms that have existed in ancient days. Uh, and then you have this fourth beast that when you turn over to Revelation 13, he's described as being like a leopard and having claws like those of a bear and a mouth like uh, that of a lion. So all three animals. So Daniel looks at this fourth beast and he goes, this doesn't look like anything I've seen before. It looks like a combination of these others. So it's different than all the ones before that were represented by animals. This one is a, a, um, a put-together animal from different animals. And so this is the way that Daniel describes it. It's described to Daniel as different, looks different. And then in Revelation chapter 13, we're told that it looks different than anything you've seen before because it's a combination of various animals. And so, but yet, while the beast, which is the kingdom, the one who is leading the kingdom, doesn't look like anything that's different from what you've seen before. He looks like a man. He has eyes like a man. He has a mouth that speaks great arrogant boast, but it's a man, this 11th horn, and he's human, and probably possessed by something that's not human, um, driven by demons and the power given to him by Satan. So um, we get the same picture in both Revelation 13 and here in Daniel. And then he continues in verse 24, and he says, as for the 10 horns, out of this kingdom, so you got this huge kingdom, ten kings will arise, and another will arise after them. That's the eleventh horn. And he will be different from the previous ones and subdue three kings. So given explicitly, when, he, when Daniel previously saw the kings pulled out, or the horns pulled out by their roots, what he's told here is those are kings over nations who are subdued. So the 11th horn kills three of the kings of the, ten of the ten kingdoms. And so the other seven naturally give him their power because they are self-protecting you know, themselves. They don't want to be killed like the other three because if they don't, the Antichrist will just kill them too and take their kingdoms. And so in, in Revelation, what we're shown is that God is orchestrating this combination of ten kings. It says that God puts it into their mind so that they might have one purpose to give their authority and their kingdom to the Antichrist. So it's God who's orchestrating this. He puts the thought in their minds. Now they are acting volitionally. We've talked about this. While God is sovereign, men still act volitionally. They do what they want to do. And here they want to join, join their forces. 
so that they can destroy any other kingdom. Namely, in that chapter that we looked at in Revelation, they destroy Babylon, the seat of immorality and blasphemy on the planet Earth. And uh, kind of reverse roles, if you will, but it's God putting in their minds that they might destroy Babylon so that God might pronounce judgment on Babylon on the earth. So again, God orchestrating all of this. And Daniel sees it, and John explains it in greater detail. Oh, they're, yeah, I think they all see it. Right. And, you know, people today would say, why, why do you study the eschatology? I, I, my, my best answer that I can give is Paul did. Paul was not in Thessalonica very long, but chap, both 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians, both of them, refer to the tribulation days. And John says, you don't need me to explain this. Well, why not, uh, Paul? Because he had already taught them, even though he wasn't there very long. So Paul's gospel included the end times. And we, we tend to think he just preached Jesus Christ and him raised and all. No, he got all the way to the end of the story and taught them about eschatology, even though he was only there for a very brief time. Sure. Right. Yeah, and and they forgot. You know, they were they were tricked into not believing what Paul had taught them. So he says, "You don't need me to explain this again, because I already have." It is. I mean, I, I agree. The study of eschatology is a protection against, yeah, this deception, meaning that you understand what's happening on the planet now that is headed for a certain destiny that's given in the scriptures and that you're not overwhelmed by what all that's taking place, even though we tend to do that as humans, to be overwhelmed and to see all the negativity. But here you see the purpose of God in doing all of this. And it is going to happen. It is going to get worse. We are seeing birth pains, and birth pains never get better. They get worse until they finally culminate in something that is very good. And the same thing is true about eschatology, about what's written in the scriptures. It will get worse. It won't get better. Yeah. Not as unwise, but as wise. So it's precisely what you're saying. Well, people from getting into the replacement theology and now and all this. You would hope it does, right? <laughs> you would hope it does. But making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Right. You know, I'm, I'm old enough to 
remember that when my parents grew up, um, you, you didn't fear your neighbors or, you know, leaving your doors unlocked. And then I, when, in the age when I came, I mean, as a six-year-old, a little small guy, right? I walked to my school on city streets that, you know, took me 15, 20 minutes to get there and walk back home and nobody worried about me. It was perfectly fine. But today, would you allow your six-year-old to walk through the city streets to go to school? No way. So you can see the progression of how it's getting worse and worse, and it will get worse. It, we're not going in a better direction. We're going in a worse direction, even though those who are in power would want to tell you that we're, it's all getting better. It's not. It's going the wrong direction. Right. Right. And recognize it for what it is and respond to it in a godly way, not in an ungodly way. So you're right. It's, it's to protect us, it's to inform us, it's to lead us in our thinking and our actions. I mean, and, and, and the, the saints um, after Jesus Christ left talked about this all the time. You go over to Peter's letters to the church, you know, a few years before he's martyred, and he is um, defending the fact in 2 Peter that Jesus Christ will come back to this earth, and he will have a kingdom. And he is fighting for that doctrine, and that's what most of 2 Peter is about, because without that, there is no hope. And without that view, why would we live godly? Well, just think about the unrest right now. There's not a more beautiful Jesus-given way to segue into the gospel discussion than thy kingdom comes, saith the Lord, thy will be done, right? And then just walk right into the time we're living in and the hope that the believer has in that. Yeah, because clearly... The will of God is not being done on the planet today. It's not. And because it's been given over to the evil one for a time. Now it's a long time, right? But the end game is right here. And he says it multiple times so that Daniel will get it right. Well, in the eschatology that Andy is talking about is those who believe that there is not a thousand-year reign, that the thousand-year reign is taking place today. And this is what is described in Revelation as the thousand-year reign. I, I, it's not getting better. And I'll tell you, the world wars did a lot of damage to those thoughts because you never had a world war before where all the nations of all the earth were fighting against one another. Then comes World War I, and then comes World War II, and there's a reorganization of how the planet is divided among the nations. And you know those who said back in the 1800s that we're in the millennium, it's getting better, and all of a sudden you have the world wars, and you're like, it's not getting better, it's getting worse. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the beast in Revelation 
wars against everybody other than himself. I mean, everybody. And he defeats everybody. And we'll see that uh, when we get over into Daniel chapter uh, 12, that he's just fighting everybody. And there are a lot of people who interpret that different than I do, but um, it's the beast conquering the world is what it's describing. So, um, I mean, we'll get to all these things, right? But Daniel is given so much insight here that later is explained in greater detail in the New Testament. And, and all those saints uh, that were writing the New Testament, you can see it, their expectation that Christ is coming again. Because they talk about it all the time. Because that's their hope. Even, even in the first century, that was their hope. And here in the 21st century, it's still our hope, right? And um, that's why it was written, is to give us hope. You keep going through this explanation. The ten horns, the, uh, the 11th horn who subdues three kings, and then verse 25, he will speak out against the Most High and wear down the saints of the highest one. That's that overpowering again. And he's arrogant, and he's blaspheming God himself because he's empowered by Satan. And so he's opposed to God. He wears down the saints of the highest one, and he will intend to make alterations in times and in law, and they will be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. Okay, we're going to talk about a couple of these things. The, the most start, um, startling one here is that he will intend to make changes in times and in laws. Now, we've already been told in chapter 2 of Daniel that it's not men who do this. It's God. And you look over in chapter 2 and, what is it, like 21, I believe it is, where it talks about who's really in authority. Yeah, Daniel, verse 20, let the name of God be blessed forever and ever for wisdom and power belong to him. It is he who changes the times and the epochs. He removes kings and he establishes kings, meaning the way that God changes the times, the laws, is that he does it through kingships and establishing them. And so this king who comes here as the 11th horn intends to do what God always does, which is change times and epochs. And we'll get into more detail in this in chapter 8. Um, when we talk about who is this who actually does this or foreshadows this, because it's pretty clear in history what took place. But this, think about it today. Think about Afghanistan today. New kingship, right? I mean, ancient kingship, but for the last 20 years has not been in power. Now they come back in power, and what's the first thing they do? They change the laws. They change the rule, right? And they go back to where they were. Um, well, you go back 20 years and that's us. You go back another 20 years and that's Russia in uh, Afghanistan, who did the same thing we did, by the way. 
Um, so for the last 40 years, they haven't ruled their own country, but now they're back in power and they go right back and change the laws back to what they were before these two invading countries came in. And so they changed the times, they changed the laws. This is what he's talking about here. This horn will intend to change the laws. And you see that in the, um, in the Ottoman Empire, when you, when you had the, um, the Muslims in control, they invoke Sharia law. And there are many countries today who are under Sharia law that you and I would push against, but yet they're in control. They change it to what they want it to be. That's the same thing that he's talking about here. To, that the, the rule of the land will be different underneath the rule of the Antichrist. He'll change the rules. And he'll, um, I'll just give you a, a foreshadowing of what this is, and we'll see it in chapter 8, and then we'll see it again later, um, that the Jews will not be able to obey the laws of God that God gave to them because the Antichrist changes the rules of the game and changes the rules of what's reigning in Israel and even on the throne and even on the altar. And we'll see that in chapter 8 when we'll, we'll take a run and understand that chapter 8 is talking about a foreshadowing of the end times through the person of, uh, of, of the cellulites that are reigning and overtake Jerusalem. And we'll see that, Antiochus Epiphanes in particular, and what he did in Jerusalem. And so we'll look at all of that that happened in the second century BC and, uh, and gain an understanding, I hope, of kind of what he's talking about here when he says he will intend to change laws and, um, and the times. So there's a lot in that verse that Daniel just sees in a glimpse that later we're given much more about. And that if you look at history and what actually happened, you'll understand a lot more about what is meant in this very pregnant phrase that he intends to change uh, times and the laws. Yeah. Right. Right, and it, and it pretty much accomplishes yeah. just that. Jesus says you won't, even, you won't see it. Right, because anyone who places faith in Christ, not all of them, I think the vast majority of them, are killed during the tribulation. I mean, the beast has control. He can do whatever he wants to, and he wants to kill the Christians. The Lord says literally, when I return, will there be any... Right. Well, he also says, and this is why I think there's some people who live through the tribulation that are believers, because he says, if God had not cut the time short, even the saints would not believe. 
So that's why I said, well, there's a few who make it through that time and maintain their faith. There are people who disagree with me on that, and I'm okay with that. You, nobody. Exactly. Well, and, and by the way, that's true today. Absolutely. And the scriptures are replete with that, that if, if God doesn't will and pour out grace upon a person, they will never believe. And that just seems to be part of the theme that flows through this whole thing. Yeah. God himself Yeah, you read the Gospel of John, and John understood this so well that he wrote it multiple times in his Gospel that God is the author of salvation. And he does it over and over. You see it in chapter 2, you see it in chapter 5, you see it in chapter 6. I mean, it just goes on and on and on about this fact that God is the <clears throat> sovereign over the salvation of men. And he repeats it over and over, which is, you know, a lot of people read the Gospel of John and miss it, but it's there in living color. And um, a lot of people don't like those chapters um, because of that that we want to be the captain of our own ship and be lord over our own salvation, which is just a ridiculous thought. But nevertheless, um, people believe that. Now, this phrase that he uses here, times and times and half a time, uh, alarms go off in people's minds, right? Um, because the scripture uses that phraseology in other places. And so... Um, you think, okay, this is a lot of places in Scripture, and it's actually not. It's only three times in all of the Scripture where this times and time and times and half a time, time being singular, times being plural, I think meaning two, and half a time being a half. So you got one plus two plus a half is three and a half. So when he says time and times and half a time, he's talking about three and a half. And we'll see, we won't get there today, but I'll show you why I believe that um, the tribulation is seven years. You can go to Revelation all day long. You can go to the New Testament all day long, and you will never see that the tribulation is seven years. It's not there. The only place where the tribulation is spoken of as being seven years is in Daniel chapter 9. It's the only place. Nowhere else in scripture. You get this in Revelation, you get the three and a half, but not the seven. And only in Daniel 9 do you get the seven years of tribulation. And I mean, <clears throat> you know, people think it's in a lot of different places. It's not. You, you can't get the seven years of tribulation from Revelation. It's just not there. Now, this <clears throat> phrase, um, time and times and half a time, is in Revelation. Um, it's only given once, <clears throat> and it's given in relation to what God does with the nation of Israel. In chapter 12 of Revelation, this is where we'll end today. Just to, This is... It's given in Daniel 7. It's given again in Daniel 9, I believe. <clears throat> no, actually, it's not in Daniel. 
9, it's where in Daniel 11, where is the other place? Sorry, I'm not going to be able to point that out to you. 12, Daniel 12, verse 7, <clears throat> where he, he's seeing another vision by a different angel. I heard the man dressed in linen who was above the waters of the river, and he raised his right hand and, he left, and his left hand toward heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time times and half a time and as soon as they finish shattering the power of the holy people all these events will be completed notice again that we're told that the holy people will be shattered they'll be killed they'll be destroyed so it's one angel asking another how long is this going to last and he answers for a time and times and half a time. And then over in Revelation, you see this also in Revelation chapter 12. And this is where in 12, there's a woman and there's a dragon. The woman is Israel, the dragon is Satan, and talks about Satan um, being ready when Jesus Christ came um, to kill him, and obviously he did. Um, all that is here in Revelation chapter 12, but so is towards the end of the chapter, over in verse 14, after um, you have this war, then in verse 12, 14, but the two wings of the great eagle were given to the woman, that's Israel, so that she could fly into the wilderness to her place where she was nourished for a time and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. So Israel, those who truly believe, are hidden by God in the desert and the dragon, Satan, limited to the earth only now, cannot find them and God nourishes them for a time and times and half a time. So during this three and a half years of the end times, the last three and a half years, Israel is hidden and they're not killed like the Christians are. And the rest of the chapter says that because of this, Satan was enraged and he calls forth the beast. And the beast in chapter 13 comes up out of the water. And we then from then to chapter 19 have the beast in his reign. Do you see this as the, 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 the split here is when you go from the false beast to hell on earth and this going down? Do you see that simultaneously occurring at that midpoint? Yeah, I, it is the way I see it, and I'll tell you why. Um, during the first three and a half years of tribulation, there are cataclysmic events, mainly in the cosmos that affect the earth. And a lot of people are killed. At one point it says a third of the population of the earth are killed. That's two billion, two and a half billion people today are killed by not natural, supernatural, but cosmos events that alter what goes on on earth. Okay, that's during the first three and a half years. 
Right. Um, and, and again, it's Daniel 9 that gives us that there's a false peace. And we'll look at that to see why we believe in seven years of tribulation. Um, but Israel begins to worship in the temple that doesn't exist today, but will exist during the, the millennial time, or the, uh, just before the millennium in the seven years of tribulation. And they will be worshiping and that's what's meant by the false peace, that the, the saints of God are able to worship according to the Mosaic law. The whole sacrificial system restarted, and they're delighted because they're able to worship God um, as intended. The only ones who would believe that today in Judaism are the Orthodox. None of the other sects of Judaism believe in the Messiah, believe that he's coming again. Only the Orthodox do, which is about 15% of the Jews today are Orthodox. Those that, are trying to build the temple. that intend to build the temple. Right, so the, the political system in Israel, the vast majority of people in Israel do not believe in the return of Jesus Christ or in the first coming in their minds of Jesus Christ. They, they don't. They've given up. Their, their goal of Judaism today is to change society and make it better. And they'll tell you that. If you talk to anybody who believes in uh, Kabbalah, um, that's what they'll tell you. That, that, that is their goal in life. Um, sad. But the Orthodox believe in the Messiah. And so those will be the ones who restart the sacrifices. And remember during the first three and a half years of tribulation, the two witnesses are on the planet. They're killed at the midpoint. And that, they're killed not just by coincidence, they're killed by the beast. And so that's when he begins to reign. That's why I see the demarcation being at the midpoint. It is clear line, and it's given in Daniel 9 that it's a clear line. And so we'll see that when we get there, but I'll go there for just a moment so that we can see the seven years, and why do we say seven years? Because it's not given in anywhere else in Scripture. So we'll, that's where we'll start off next week in trying to, um, can we make an argument, a good biblical argument for seven years of tribulation? Um, I think we can, and so we'll try and do that beginning next time. So thanks for your time this morning.